0: Welcome to the Being Rare Podcast. I am your host, Sarita Edwards. Being Rare is an online resource hub and community conversations platform. We'll talk about living with rare diseases, medical complexities, disability, and special health needs. From time to time, we'll have some amazing guests to help navigate the conversation. Stay up to date on current episodes by subscribing to Being Rare wherever you listen to your podcast. Today's episode is an exclusive audio edition of the Ewe Foundation's 2022 Leap into Advocacy Virtual Summit. Keep listening to hear from experts, researchers, advocates, and more. To learn more about the Ewe Foundation, visit ewefoundation.org. Edward syndrome, commonly known as Trisomy 18, is a rare chromosome abnormality. The EWI Foundation is a 501c3 healthcare advocacy organization created to support families living with Edwards Syndrome. The EWI Foundation offers health literacy and community resources, comfort care, and financial support. Information at theewefoundation.org.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Shivani Gyas and welcome to today's Young Adult Legislative Advocacy Session. We are going to go ahead and get
2: started now. All right, so
1: today's agenda, me, Ella and Laura will be covering the three topics The importance of young adult advocacy, legislative advocacy on the federal level, and then finally legislative advocacy on the state level. And we're going to be discussing how you can get involved through different opportunities and things like that. So a brief introduction. So I'm Shivani and I'm the host of the rare disorder podcast and a rare disease advocate. Ella Balassa is an advocate and consultant And then Laura is a rare disease advocate. And all of us got involved or are very involved through YAR, which is young adult representatives of RDLA. So
2: rare disease legislative advocates. So I'm going to be talking about the importance of young adult advocacy today.
1: So I'm a freshman at Duke, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And my connection to the rare disease community is that I had a grandmother who was diagnosed with a rare pancreatic cancer. And although I was very young at the time, my parents have talked multiple times about the difficulty we had finding resources and answers just because her cancer was so rare. And um, we would look around, and we couldn't really find that many resources that were out there. So um, this is what got me initially immersed in the rare disease community as I kind of looked around on Instagram and different social media platforms and found that rare diseases are not as rare as I originally thought. So in March of 2020, I decided to create a podcast called the Rare Disorder Podcast to bring awareness to rare diseases and rare disorders um, in the broader medical community as well as allow patients a platform to share their stories um, through storytelling. And my main motive going into this was really to elevate patient voices, Um, just because I really believe that patient stories and experiences matter. And I really wanted a way to empower patients um, in their own story and in their own identity. So this podcast has two different series. My first is Meet a Fighter, which Um, is a series where I invite patients on to share their stories, um, discuss um, their story with me through an interview style format. And then I have a meet an expert series where I invite on rare disease organization leaders and influential people in the rare disease space to kind of share um, resources that are out there and all these other types of like advocacy opportunities and things like that. So eventually, as I continued podcasting and um, connecting with more patients and advocates, uh, many other opportunities opened to me, including YAR. And this allowed me to create a direct impact through legislative work. And later on, I'm going to be discussing how you can do this too and kind of really take that step and deep dive into rare disease advocacy. And just this past February, I participated in my first legislative conference type thing, which is Rare Disease Week 2022, which was organized by rare disease legislative advocates. So why does advocacy matter, especially in the rare disease space? So in the United States, a disease is considered rare when it affects fewer than 200,000 people. Researchers estimate that there are more than 7,000 rare diseases currently and rare diseases affect an estimated 30 million Americans. And lastly, 93% of rare diseases have no FDA approved treatment. So these statistics kind of really show us that advocacy is needed and um, we should always strive to bring awareness to rare diseases. So the next steps in your advocacy journey. So if you're just starting out, I would recommend if you're a young adult, you can join a young adult group focused on advocacy. YAR is the perfect opportunity for this. You can also meet with your legislators through Rare Disease Week on Capitol Hill and Rare Across
2: America, which is coming up and I'll talk about that in a second. So YAR is
1: Stands for the Young Adult Representatives of RDLA, and this is a highly motivated group of 16 to 30 year olds from the rare disease community. The main purpose of YAR is to instill confidence in the next generation of rare disease advocates. So, as I was saying earlier, I kind of found out through YAR, found out about YAR through my podcast and meeting different advocates. And actually, Laura, who is on this panel today, and will will be speaking later um I interviewed her on my pod I interviewed them on my podcast and this is kind of how I was introduced to YAR because they were talking about how they do a lot of advocacy work through YAR and things like that and it's been a really great opportunity for me and just if you want to kind of guide them to advocacy in general just because there's so many opportunities to meet other people I have found a really tight community through YAR and have made a lot of friends. And I think this is really important just because support is really important when you're
2: kind of diving into this advocacy realm in the rare right disease space. So, if you're interested in meeting with your legislators from the stories
1: I've told, you can register for Rare Across America which is a chance to meet with your senators and House representatives while Congress is on summer recess back in their home districts. This year, House meetings will be at your local in state office in person and Senate meetings will be virtual. You can attend either or both kinds of meetings based on how comfortable you are. And um, just a key date, registration closes on July 8th. So I encourage you to register soon if you want to attend. Um, you'll get a lot more information and training leading up to your meetings. Um, I'll be there and I hope to talk with you more. So if you're interested, feel free to take a picture of the slide and make
2: sure to register by July 8th. So one of the easy... Another easy way
1: to get your voice heard is by participating in one of the Hill meetings with your legislator during rare disease week, especially if you're new to meeting with your legislators. So as I said, this was the first time I kind of met with my legislators and I found it super easy, super seamless process. There was so much guidance provided and training, so I highly encourage this. Um, So RDLA brings together over 800 advocates from around the country each year to advocate for policy issues that are important to the rare disease community. And this past February, um, I was blown away by how empowered I really felt in the end. And it's, it's a really great opportunity to connect directly with your legislators. And the best part is that RDLA takes care of all the logistics and things like that for you, like setting up meetings, things like that. Um, They offer plenty of support leading up to the meetings, and you definitely do not have to be a policy expert to attend. Just keep an eye out for the registration opening in early 2023.
2: Feel free to take a picture of this slide as well, if you're interested, just so you can keep an eye out. All right, so that's it for me. Thank you everyone for your
1: time and attention. I'll now be passing it to Ella Balassa who will speak more on federal
3: advocacy. All right, Um, thanks Shivani, and thanks for having me um, as part of this presentation. So I'm gonna talk um, a little bit about the power of federal advocacy. Um, You know, as as patients, uh, patient advocates and as the public, we have the power to effect change in the political process. And that me, this means, you know, changing leg- legislation and policies to improve healthcare. You can go to the next slide. So, you know, as I said, um, there are a few, there are a variety of ways where um, healthcare can be modified and improved through legislation and policies and public policies that um, impact science, like um, what is being, depending on what is being researched um, and where our, like funding goes and um, even like reimbursements to industry. So that's like the Pasteur Act and that pertains to the development of antibiotics. Um, legislation also affects the drug development process, um, as well as um, FDA regulations and, you know, how quickly a potential treatment may be reviewed by the FDA or, you know, if it's given like fast-track approval, um, you know, these would be things like the STAT Act of benefit or PDUFA, as that was mentioned before. Um, And then also access to treatments. Uh, Federal policies can require certain medications to be, you know, accessible for patients on formularies with insurance plans. So that's just one example. And uh, drug pricing is another. So uh, and then also inclusivity um, in clinical trials um, and having appropriate, rep- appropriate population representation in trials. Um, so these are a couple of different areas in healthcare that can be affected uh, and changed by uh, legislative advocacy. Next slide. So um, I'll talk a little bit about my own advocacy now and how that's uh, you know, kind of that intertwining there with the federal advocacy I've done. Um, So I have cystic fibrosis, which is um, a progressive genetic disease. And I was diagnosed at one years old. Um, It is a disease that's characterized by the buildup of thick mucus in the lungs. And this causes a cycle of inflammation and infections. And it does require lifelong treatment with antibiotics to treat these infections. Um, And over time, these infections deteriorate lung tissue um, and it leads to a shortened life expectancy due to lung failure. So over the course of my life, I've had many countless hospitalizations requiring intravenous antibiotics, and um, daily I do about four inhaled breathing treatments to clear this mucus from my lungs. Um, I have a degree in biology, and, and I worked in a lab for a number of years, so that's about the time when I started really getting involved in advocacy, as lending my voice um, as a patient perspective in research. So I felt that my, my background certainly helped in bridging these gaps that I saw in, in healthcare and specifically in drug development. Um, and in two thousand and nineteen, I faced a very difficult lung infection an antibiotic resistant infection that didn't respond to any treatment. Um, and that's when I resorted to trying an experimental treatment that wasn't FDA approved. Um, And that period of time was the most difficult and scary um, health experiences that I've had to date um, just because of really the, the, there was nothing to treat my infection and it was rampant and there was nothing I could do about it. And I was functioning at like 18% lung function. So as you can imagine, I was very limited in, in what I could do physically and Requiring supplement oxygen and things. Um, so, fast forward, I, I that treatment ended up helping me, but I wanted to share about this experience publicly and, and raise awareness about the need for the, the development of new um, antibiotics to treat people like me who, you know, face bacterial infections that are resistant to all antibiotics. So, I wrote about this experience. I had my, I shared my patient story with advocacy groups working. In raising awareness about antibiotic resistance, and um, and then from there, I was asked to speak at conferences and meetings, um, sharing about my story. And I spoke on panels at like the Milken Institute and FDA, um, to you know FDA the the Rare Disease Day and FDA, um, and also at congressional meetings with um, Virginia legislators from the House and um, and various nonprofit groups too, like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Uh, and the Presidential Advisory Council on Antibiotic Resistant Bacteria, the Infectious Diseases, the Infectious Disease Society of America. And a lot of those meetings and appearances that I made were um, in regard to the support of the Pasture Act and um, you know, the spurring of innovation to incentivize industry to develop novel antibiotics. Um, so, you know, beyond, this has been my major focus, but beyond this, I've also been a part of the Every Life Foundation and was selected as a rare artist last year. Um, and actually, can you go to the next slide, sorry, I didn't say that. Um, so that's my drawing there, actually. Um, I was a rare artist and it was, I depicted, um, drew a picture of lungs in, in the shape of branches that resembles Belongs with people with CF, and so through my art expression, I've been able to impact um, CF awareness nationally as well. Um, and there are also some other ways that you know, resource advocacy resources that I've used to expand my own knowledge of, of advocacy and involvement, and um, particularly the um, RDLA and, and YAR, as Shivani mentioned, they have. Uh, like monthly webinars that really provide a lot of valuable information and um, keeping up to date as patients with policy changes and policy creations that are happening. Um, And then also the um, Patients Rising Masterclass, that's a really incredible resource for learning about advocacy and, you know, the topics that really the areas of focus where we can have, where our voices can elicit changes. Um, So those are just some two um, areas that I've um, or two things that I've been involved in that have really expanded my advocacy efforts as well. Can go to the next slide. So this is to say that you know our our voices matter. Your advocacy matters. You know there are so many hurdles and healthcare problems that exist, and uh, you know humanizing these challenges helps to move health move the healthcare industry and improve health outcomes so you know I think when we're sharing our voices it's inspiring innovation and spurring effort from policymakers and you know I think it's important to to say that you know your legislators want to hear from you you know we are the constituents you know we are the people that they serve and we are the experts in our own rare disease and in our experiences And we have the best knowledge and understanding of what is important for people like us living with our diseases and our conditions, and we can serve as a voice for other people. And I think that is what is the most motivation for me um, is that I know that by raising my voice, I'm helping others like myself who can't or don't know how to start. Um, And this is why it's so important to have webinars such as these, uh, where you know we as patient advocates are encouraging each other, encouraging others and more, more people to be empowered um, and to use voice for use our voices for change. We are the consumers in healthcare and we need it to serve us. And change does come about when we make our issues and our obstacles heard. And you know, I think there's just so much collective power in patients coming together and talking about. Treatments, research, and things that aren't working in healthcare, and where these where these changes need to be affected, and this really does grab the attention um, and elicit changes from from policymakers and industry and, and advocacy groups alike. Um, so, you know, there's this. This can happen in a in a variety of ways. Um, you can go to the next slide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, raising our voices can can happen in a variety of ways, and we all know that having face to face contact communication is the most effective, you know, it can affect us the most emotionally. Um, as we know with the zoom um, definitely had zoom fatigue for a while there right during COVID. but you know same thing I think when we're connecting and communicating with our legislators, so you know. In-person, it's shown that in-person visits from constituents to um, legislators significantly has a positive impact. Um, And this is taken from a survey from the Congressional Management Foundation. Um, And after that, letters and emails and calls are quite valuable as well. Um, But that's just um, something to keep in mind when we are connecting with our our legislators and how we can do that. Next slide. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about what the, I've been talking quite abstractly now, but now I want to give more like specifics on like what the federal uh, landscape legislative process involves. So it starts with an idea um, and that becomes a proposed bill in the House or the Senate uh, by a member of Congress. Um, and then both the Senate and the House Have to vote on a bill before it passes. Uh, And then if it does, it is signed into law by the president. Um, But there's a lot of like back and forth discussion and negotiating in committees um, between the House and the Senate before that's actually approved by both. Um, And as advocates, here's where we can come in and, you know, we can write, you know, to these committees, speak to our congressmen to, um, you know, support a bill. Or to um, have here have one of the have the committees hear um, these bills to move it along through Congress. Um, even when a bill is introduced, you can advocate. You know, before it's really in the discussion, you can advocate. You know, with your congressman too, and um, especially through like a public means, like you know newspapers, TV, local news, um, any sort of written content too that pertains to these bills or, you know, policy changes is important to to capture that attention. Um, And they're, you know, specific to the rare disease community. Um, The ones that are most relevant um, would be, you know, funding the CDC, NIH, uh, you know, health and human services agencies and the Department of Labor and Education. So these are the areas that, um, you know, obviously would, would impact the rare disease community. And then, of course, also the FDA. Um, right? There's a lot of policies regarding FDA that um, really do directly impact the way that patients in rare disease or any disease really are able to access treatments and um, the speed by which, you know, new innovation is brought through. Um, And there's also what are called congressional caucuses. So um, there's the the rare, rare disease congressional caucus, and this is a group of members of Congress that meets to pursue common legislative objectives within rare disease for this one, but there are hundreds of caucuses and um, they consist of, you know, like an interest group. So, um, they, these, these caucuses can hold briefings to raise awareness um, about rare disease and these are not, um, they're not bills of in and of themselves, but they're just a ways that, you know, this kind of conversation can come about and then you know, a bill could be potentially introduced through this, you know, having raising awareness or, you know, about a specific topic in rare disease um, within legislators, I think is really important just to have that conversation. Um, So this is a great way that, you know, the rare disease conversation and just health policy is really relevant and, and discussed broadly in Congress. So I think that's my last slide. Um, And I appreciate being here and I'm looking forward to the conversation we're gonna have after um, Laura gives their um, talk about state legislative advocacy.
4: Thanks, Ella. Um, I'm Laura and I'm here to talk to you
2: a bit today about state legislative advocacy. Next slide.
4: So briefly, my connection to rare. I am a rare disease patient. I'm diagnosed with classical like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. I was diagnosed at 18 after several years of medical issues and didn't confirm the diagnosis of the exact subtype until I was 22. That was quite the diagnostic odyssey. I've been a member of YAR since 2021. And I'm a graduate of the YAR Leadership Academy and the Speakers Bureau training, which were some ways that I was able to further learn how to use my voice for some advocacy. Next slide. So for me, prior to this year specifically, most of my advocacy has been more at the federal level, but I'm getting more into the state advocacy and finding that I really love it. In 2017, I joined the EDS New England. It used to be EDS Massachusetts Support Group, which was just a group for people with my condition to get together and sort of talk to each other, get to know each other, have a community. And through that, I was able to connect with a few smaller advocacy events. Most notably, I helped with a Marfan Foundation event where they did just some tabling outside of the Rent National Tour while it was in Boston. And then in 2021 and 2022, I worked with Governor Baker's office here in Massachusetts to have the month of May recognized as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders Awareness Month, which was a really cool opportunity to sort of work one-on-one with these offices to tweet language for these proclamations, to really write some good press releases that shared some great information about the conditions as well as other ways that people could get involved in the rare disease space. And then most recently, just earlier this month, I attended the Massachusetts State Advocacy Day put on by the Every Life Foundation. And I was a speaker at the morning conference, and then I got to meet with state legislator offices in the afternoon to advocate for a few state policies that would really help the rare disease community here in Massachusetts. Next slide. So when it comes to the state level, there are quite a few different policies that could have great impact on the rare disease community that you can get involved in with your in your own home state. Most of my experience at the state level comes with these first four bullet points, so I can speak a little bit more in detail on those. Um, So the first one on here is step therapy or this idea of fail first. And the, the legislation for that would basically give doctors the ability to override insurance companies saying that you have to try a different treatment before they'll cover the one that your provider recommends. So this would give them some avenues to take if this type of therapy could be harmful to their patient. The next is about copay accumulators, which is the idea that when you get like a drug coupon, you, that doesn't count. Out of your deductible or your out-of-pocket maximum, so this would make sure that patients, that insurance companies aren't double dipping from patients. The next is medical licensure, which specifically I think about the idea of, I believe it's called the compact, that would allow providers to be licensed for telehealth in multiple states without as many hoops to jump through, which would be amazing for the rare disease community, because as many of us know you cannot always access care in your home state and for a lot of us travel is difficult and expensive so having ways that you could meet with your specialists online would be amazing and a great way to expand the access we've seen with some of the COVID rulings that allowed us to have expanded telehealth access. The next is the access to genetic counselors and that would just basically make sure that genetic counselors are able to work in the full scope of their practice and that those services are available to the patients who need them for accurate testing and diagnostics. There are also policies surrounding Medicaid that you can be involved in in your home state, as well as newborn screening, which is vital to make sure that these rare diseases are getting diagnosed as early as possible and treated as early as possible. Next slide. So there are a lot of actions you can take as an advocate at the state level. There are state organizations, like I mentioned with that EDS organization. These are nonprofit organizations that connect advocates and you, through these organizations, you can advocate for state and federal legislation. You can get together as a community. You can share education with both the rare disease patients and the general public. And it's a great starting point for people who are newly diagnosed either as the patient themselves or as families of a patient. And this is a great way to just meet people, make connections and learn more about how you can get involved. There are also rare disease state legislative caucuses, which is essentially state legislators who come together about common objectives that would affect the rare disease community. Last but not least, there are rare disease advisory councils which is a place for stakeholders to advise legislators on rare disease issues and experiences. And these have a wide variety of roles in them. So usually there's patient advocates, parent advocates, healthcare providers, researchers, organization leaders, and even more. Usually you have a variety of types of healthcare providers. So these are really awesome opportunities to get involved in the state level as well. Next slide. There's also the RDLA State Advocacy Hub, which is a great resource for people who are wanting to become involved in advocacy at the state level. This is a great place to find resources about healthcare regulations and bills that would impact the disease community in your own state.
2: Next slide. And last
4: but not least, it's important to remember that your story and your advocacy matter. Meeting with your legislators, especially in your home state, is a great opportunity to use your story to put a face to rare disease. People hear rare disease and they think, how many people can that really affect? Why does it matter? Why should I care if it's rare? But by putting a face and a story to the term rare disease, you're taking the power and you're showing the humanity behind these conditions. Next slide.
2: So here's our contact information. If you have any other questions, you
1: can reach out to us. And if you would like to keep up with the young adult representatives of RDLA or even join, here
2: is the contact information. Feel free to take a picture. All right, so now we're gonna be going into a panel discussion. And if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. All right, so if
1: all our panelists could turn on their cameras, that would be great. And we are just going to kick this off by how could one get started in rare disease advocacy? For example, how do you initiate possible solutions for an issue you may see on your local news station or just on the television one day?
5: So I'm going to jump in. Uh, I'm new here for, um, a lot of great information from the last two panelists, um, excuse me, presenters. And I'm Jennifer Harris to introduce myself with Alabama Rise. I'm the health policy advocate there. And I'm not new to the advocacy space, as I'm also the caregiver of a child with a rare disorder. And I um, work every day to kind of do what you just said, because a lot of times people will see legislative uh, advocacy, they'll see people on the news, they are here about events and things to go to, and they're not really sure where to start and where to begin because we always have to begin somewhere. And that comes in with the work that I am blessed to be able to do. So um, some of the things that you can think about is that we're all, I'm just gonna repeat a lot of things that were said today that we all need to hear. We all have a voice and our voice is important. And we all have information that we know about and information that we're more likely to be an expert, or even if we don't feel like it, pretty close to being an expert about. And I'm sure most of you all here can truly understand that in the red disorder space, excuse me. So a lot of times when you see those things, they have to start somewhere. And when people identify issue, they may not know who else to speak to, who else is experiencing this, or who they can connect to, they can understand and help them organize. So I'll use an example of a project that I am currently beginning to work on. Um, Cerebral cancer rates have been identified as a huge issue in rural Alabama. So one of the projects that we are planning to work on with one of our Partners is to reduce those rates by creating local advocates within the community because those advocates are going to know the community they're going to know the needs and they're going to know the resources and so i'll be meeting with those advocates later this summer we'll be doing a three-day training that gives an overview of everything from realizing Um, communication styles to get into how you discuss your issues and also how you identify the issues, but also to encourage people to look at their strengths and where they lie so that they can know things like, I am not the person to get up and do public speaking. I'm not the person to reach out to the media, but I will be there to do letters or I will knock on doors or I will call people so that they can have very good organizing efforts to really uh, magnify those strengths, but among the group. And so that's how those things kind of begin. And then if someone has not identified the issue, you can go and say, this is what we've identified. This is what we know. This is the work that we have been doing so that you can move into those next levels that would be at the state level or onto the federal level.
3: Thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. I think that that was a fantastic example of a way that you know, somebody can get started in advocacy. You know, just to add to that, I, I would say like um, my involvement with nonprofit groups, um, specifically in cystic fibrosis, paved the way for you know my involvement in federal advocacy and those opportunities to connect with legislators and you know project my voice to a larger audience. So, um, you know, I would say. Even, even, yeah, getting involved in community efforts then grows beyond that, as you just described. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, it doesn't. You don't have to. Doesn't have to start big. It can be very small and very local. Um, but our voices grow, and 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 with the effort of of other peoples too in our community, that can expand and can can reach um, the federal, state, and federal levels uh, very quickly. So, you know, don't be intimidated. Be, have that confidence in what you know about your health and about your care and the problems you identify and make that known. And, and you know yeah, don't be afraid to to reach out to local media if you're if you feel comfortable doing that. you know like it, it there, the answer might be no if that's what you're afraid of, but you don't know until you ask. So I think that that's something I really um, live by is you know don't don't be afraid to ask because you don't know the answer. It might be it might be a yes and you might be able to move your issue or you know your topic forward through whatever means that is
5: and if the answer is no it may really be no not right now or no not this way there's always a solution to be found somewhere
4: sort of build on what ella was just saying about how this sort of work can be intimidating at first i think a lot of people hear the term legislative advocacy. I know at least I did and felt very intimidated by that. Felt like you don't have the background to understand these policies in depth, but you really don't need to when you're starting out. It's so important to just start out by knowing how to use your story, to know that your story has value and meaning and that by sharing your story, you're making a difference. You're putting a face, you're putting a story to, these more abstract concepts that someone who doesn't know, someone who has a rare disease, doesn't understand the humanity behind it.
1: Yeah, just kind of building off what Laura said, um, I remember when I was starting out, I was kind of intimidated by like all of the different, like bills, all the different terms that people were kind of talking about. But one thing I've noticed is that there's so much support provided and so much training there are like one pagers for the bill so you can like learn about them. I just feel that also just the community and people around me were so willing to um, help me like knowing it was my first time. So just know that there's lots of support and
2: training that will really help you. So don't be intimidated to start putting your voice out there.
5: And a very good point. I'll say I am based in Alabama at Alabama Rise. We're one of those agencies that do those things where we break down the legislative sessions, the bills and things. So find those, uh, find those same types of organizations where you are because there's always somebody there and your story does need to be heard. All
1: right, so kind of just building off what we all were talking about, kind of getting your voice out there, how would you prepare for a day of advocacy?
4: For me, when I'm getting ready for any type of an advocacy day, my first step is always just doing a quick Google search about whatever specific legislative asks we're going through, whether that's reading through the one-pagers that have been provided or just sort of looking up the history of who already is in support of this bill, who the co-sponsors of the bill are, where the bill has gotten so far, where it currently is standing, just to really familiarize myself with what I'm going into these meetings asking my legislators for. And I also like to do a quick search of the legislative offices that I'm meeting with to sort of learn a little bit more about the person and what other things they support, what their history with the rare disease community is, Because that can be a great way to sort of break the ice is if you have something you can thank a legislator for that they've already done for the community, that sort of puts you on some common ground that you're like, this person has already done something that has helped our community. You want to make sure you're thanking them for that because it shows that you actually appreciate them doing this for us. (laughs) But then also just like going in and knowing that I'm confident and I know my story and I know how to make other people care about my story is really important too. So I try to like brush up on exactly what my elevator pitch is going to be, and what the most important things that I wanna share in relation to these legislative asks. Because obviously every rare disease patient or caregiver has a very vast story. You don't always have time to give every single detail. So picking and choosing what's the most relevant is really important before
5: these meetings as well. And uh, you also may want to think about when I've done advocacy days, we've taken uh, that information to kind of leave behind, to kind of have that visual there, that tangible item that they can pick up and look at, uh, that kind of summarizes the things that you are thanking them for, the showing that gratitude, as well as like why this will help me or people like me, and as well as this is the impact this can have as well so that has also been something that i found helpful on advocacy days
1: yeah um i would say just kind of going into the meetings knowing like what point you want to get across because usually it's a lot of you meeting with a legislator for a pretty short amount of time so there's not like a lot of time for each person to speak so kind of knowing exactly what you wanna communicate with them, whether that is asking them for support of a bill or a specific act,
2: Um, just kind of going in knowing that is really helpful.
5: And might I add that um, even if you are not necessarily comfortable speaking, go there to be seen, go there so they can know the numbers as well and to be supportive in that place as well.
2: All right, so a question has come in,
1: how can I get involved at the state level with advocacy? They've done some federal advocacy with RDLA in the past, but specifically how can
2: they get involved in the state? Well,
5: I'll share another in?
4: little.
5: Oh.
4: oh. <laughs> go ahead Jennifer, you go first.
5: Uh, say so I would chime in again and say, uh, find those organizations, and it will usually be more than one. Uh, many of them will be overlapping, and you will be amazed sometimes when you begin doing that research to say, wow, um, this could fit here or fit here. And you'll usually see those organizations are working together. Um, so find those that are doing that, going through those 100 plus page bills, pulling out the important things that will be relevant to what you're advocating for and what your needs are. Um, And once you make those connections, the network is gonna grow and expand because it's not just gonna be like, it's just going to be one group necessarily.
4: And I'll add um, just another plug for that State Advocacy Hub. That's a great resource that you can go to to learn more about what's happening in your state as far as policies and bills that need voices behind them. Um, And then from there, even just something as simple as sending an email to your legislator's office is advocating. It doesn't have to be formal meetings. It doesn't have to be an organized day with other advocates. It can be as simple as a phone call, a letter, an email.
2: So kind of after doing all this state
1: advocacy, how do like these community and state efforts eventually become federal
2: legislation? What would the process look like?
5: Hmm. I think sometimes it starts um, usually with an idea somewhere. Like I recently learned about the new five 88, eight, if you all are not familiar with that, that all states are supposed to roll out uh, to be similar to 911, but for suicide prevention. Um, and as we were kind of discussing this, it's not as usually usually goes, it's not rolling out as smoothly as it was thought about. But the idea started somewhere and it probably built and took root. And then usually different types of groups are looking at what's being done at neighboring states or across the United States. And there are usually larger organizations as well that are supporting the work that is being done in the states that also are connectors for us to network on and continue doing this type of work. Um, Because it would be very similar to what I said a moment ago, when you begin looking in your state, you'll start seeing things that are being done in other states neighboring states and you'll make those connections there. Uh, And then once we kind of see that need, then it begins moving to that federal level because we do want to remember that we have local representatives, we have state representatives and we have federal representatives all within our own states.
2: So if one's interested in kind of emailing
1: or calling their legislators, how could they find out who their legislators are in order
2: to get in contact with them?
5: Probably doing a quick Google search would help. (laughs) Um, Going to the Secretary of State's website will also be a good place to start because it's also gonna let you know uh, how to register to vote if you are not registered to vote or if you need to help someone get registered to vote. Uh, and that's gonna be starting to where you would see where those local representatives are as well as those state representatives are.
2: So does anyone wanna share their like
1: favorite memory from Rare Disease Week or just advocating in the past?
2: Um, just something that kind of really stuck with them, or is their favorite memory?
3: This isn't an. This is not an example of advocating on the hill, but um, it was for Rare Disease Day at FDA, um, and I was a panelist um, on one of the sessions discussing antibiotic resistance and how um, basically the FDA can improve their, um, you know, I guess, regulation or, you know, surrounding developing new treatments and how to get more um, end of one or expanded access trials to new therapies. Um, So that's an area where I also advocate quite a bit for as um, in cystic fibrosis, there's obviously a small patient population and With a lot of exclusion criteria, not many patients can participate in these trials, and so, um, you know, having the possibility to access some of these treatments early or you know without outside of a traditional clinical trial um, is really important. And so, that was a pretty exciting um, experience. And um, having just not that long ago been delved really into advocacy that was was in two thousand twenty, so right before COVID started, and. Um, So at the time, that was right at the beginning of my advocacy work, and um, so it was just a really cool experience to have my voice in that sort of platform, and that really is one of the catalysts to, you know, having my involvement now and and much more advocacy, and you know, federally and um, in general, so I would say that's been the best experience so far.
4: For me, one of my favorite advocacy moments was at this recent state advocacy day. It was my first time doing any sort of in-person meetings with legislative offices. And during one of my meetings, we met with a legislative aide who actually had a younger sister who had a rare disease who had sadly passed away. But it was this amazing moment of connection of finding someone who understood on a very deeply personal level what we were there to talk about and being able to hear her story as well and her input about these pieces of legislation and her really being so on board with what we were saying because she knew firsthand what it felt like to be in a rare disease family was just such a powerful moment but also just such a good reminder that like rare disease doesn't discriminate like every family has a chance of being affected by a rare disease.
5: And my favorite memory would be the first uh, advocacy day that I attended for Sickle Cell in 2019 on the Hill. Uh, it was just the, uh, the sheer volume of seeing the number of people there, just the exchange of conversations, uh, just like Laura said, making the connections when you're speaking with people and even not even in the offices, like in the hallways. It was just that energy, I just love the energy because it really just fueled the feeling of hope and of connecting and people understanding so that things would continue to per- improve and continue to get better.
1: Yeah, I would say my favorite memory was definitely this past rare disease week. Um, I remember that with one of my meetings with legislators, um, one of the people who was with me asked our legislator to join the Congressional Caucus for rare disease. And just like a couple of weeks after they emailed back and said that they had joined. So it was kind of really cool um, getting to see that really like what we're doing like with these meetings and meeting with our legislators really makes an impact. And um, this was my first rare disease week. So it was awesome. Um, Kind of getting to see that. And it was kind of really motivational for me to continue to participate in these events,
2: seeing that it really does make a change and a difference. All right. So thank you so
1: much to our panelists today. This was a really great conversation. And now I'll pass
0: it back to Sarita. Um, I was just gonna say before you guys uh, step away, there was a question that came in, uh, it just came through on the chat and it's asking, can anyone share a tip on how they personally overcame their self-doubt when it came to uh, becoming an advocate? Would any one of you like to speak to that quickly before we wrap this session up?
4: I can speak on this one really quickly. I think the best thing for me was surrounding myself by pe- with people who, would constantly reassure me that my voice did matter and that I was capable of doing this. So just finding some people who believe in you is a really great way to build yourself up to be confident in what you're doing.
5: And there are people out there. So be encouraged to knowing that Uh, you just met a few today. Uh, you saw many of our bios, you have our our emails and contact information. So even if you just drop a line and say, I want to do this and I'm scared, I don't know where to start, there are a lot of people here, just like there are a lot of people out there as well that are willing to help. So just find one of us and we will get you to where you need to be.
0: That's so great. Um, and too, I think one of the other sessions, and you guys may have touched on it too, is just just really recognizing that advocacy doesn't look the same for everybody. You know, you you are in charge of what you want your advocacy journey to look like. So um, if you're interested, these are some, some great young folks. Um, they did share in the chat too, just talking about how amazing um, it is to have so much information coming from you guys. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, we're so glad you feel empowered. That comment I just saw pop up. So thank you so much to um, Shivana, Ella, Laura, Jennifer for this session. We are at the close of our conference. Thank you to all of our other guests and panelists. Thank you guys for just being here, hanging out with us. So, um, Until the next time, keep being rare. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a comment or review. Stay up to date on current conversations by subscribing to Being Rare wherever you listen to your podcast. Connect with us on social media at Sarita Edwards at the Being Rare podcast. Until the next episode, be rare.